Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome into an all new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And trying to find a lozenge for my boy over here. I'm Nick Severi. I tell you, you got to play through the pain, baby. Listen, we're going to get into why my throat sounds terrible. But on the program today, let's speaking of terrible, former President Trump, Nick, attacks one of our own. And it's go time. Nick and I, on a recent message, the former president lobbied against a friend of this program, somebody that you've heard on this program. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a sec. Plus, speaking of the former president, him and a few others in the GOP 24 field, we're on the campaign trail. So Nick and I are going to break down some comments from some of these folks over on the campaign trail. The former president was in South Dakota giving a speech recently. We're going to look at some new polling data that has one particular person potentially a challenger to not only the former president, but the current one. Plus, later on the program, Nick and I talk with author of the book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy. Nora Noose. Nora's coming up in the next segment. She breaks down her new book, Everything That Happened Back in 2017 in August in Charlottesville. If you don't know the story of these neo-Nazis that rallied in Charlottesville, Virginia, over a two-day stretch, you're going to shake your head at some of the way law enforcement, state and local officials botched the warning signs of this event. Stay tuned for Nora breaking all of that down. In the next segment, before we get started real quick, um, our thoughts and prayers are with the people in Morocco as the death toll continues to rise there after Friday's powerful earthquake, about 2,500 people as of this taping right now, the interior ministry says have have died in this earthquake, 6.5 magnitude earthquake. In our show notes, there's a way to donate to the people of Morocco. The big issue that's happening right now is they haven't really accepted international aid in this 
uh, quest to look for other people underneath all the rubble and debris. It's a shame, but we're going to try to find uh, ways to put links up for you guys and gals out there that want to donate to the folks that are affected by the tragedies that are happening in Morocco with that earthquake. Speaking of another tragedy, a uh, terrible segue, but unfortunately, as you know, as you're listening to this episode, day after 9-11, um, the horrible attacks that happened here in New York City, in Washington, D.C., and obviously the flight of United 93 that crashed in Pennsylvania with some terrorists that were on the flight and the brave men and women that tackled those uh, pilots that tried to crash that plane into another one of our buildings here in the U.S. Um, President Biden was in Alaska at a military base up there giving a speech. I want to play a little bit of what the president said here for you, Nick. Take a listen to this. The soul of America is the fortitude we found in the fear of that terrible September day. The purpose we found in our pain, the light we found in our darkest hour, an hour when terrorists believed they could bring us to our knees, bend our will, break our resolve. But they were wrong. They were dead wrong. In the crucible of 9-11 and the days and months that followed, we saw the stuff America was made of. Firefighters and police officers other first responders running into an inferno of jet fuel, debris at ground zero, breathing in toxins and ash that would damage their own health, but still refusing to stop for months. Civilians and service members of the Pentagon rushing into the fiery breach again and again and again to rescue their colleagues in the Pentagon. The Patriot passengers on Flight 93, think of this, who did not know the horror that awaited them, but they confronted the unimaginable fear and terror with absolute courage. It's astonishing. The poet Maya Angelou wrote, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if we faced it with courage, we need not live it again. Strong words there and message by uh, the President of the United States. You know, 9-11 for me is... is um it's weird because Nick and I were both in college at the time at Rutgers university. Uh, I think Nick was about to graduate that year or no, the next year. Um, I was a rising junior. So I had an internship back in the city. I was working at clear channel communications. I didn't go to the internship that day. Um, they had offices in lower Manhattan in midtown and in Jersey city as well. Um, so I woke up to, a bunch of people uh, calling me via my Nextel phone. That's right. That's a sentence that just got said on this show. And my roommate waking me up to the horror and the images on television as we as we watch from our campus dorm room. And then obviously a half hour, 40 minutes later, seeing a second plane hit and realizing what was happening. Um, you could see the smoke from where Rutgers University was about 35 miles away from New York City. That's how powerful these flames were. And um, I didn't get on a plane for about 15 years after that. Um, took a while until my best friend in the world got married in Puerto Rico, where my family's from. So that just goes to show you how much it took for me to get on a plane. And I was incredibly, you know, scared um, just of every fail safe that we just never had checkmarked here in the U.S., Things that we take for granted right now, going through airport security, taking off your shoes, putting your 
everything through a metal detector, taking your belts off, all these little things, not saying some of this stuff wasn't being done back in 2001, but a lot of it wasn't being done in 2001. And I just refused to get on a plane. And it's a, it's a very personal story that I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this can relate to where they were that day, what happened to them, um, you know, how they processed it. I'm sure, especially for our New York, New Jersey, Connecticut listeners will know somebody that either personally was affected that day, had somebody pass away or um, know somebody that knows somebody that passed away on that day. So we will never forget the old, close to 3000 people that lost their lives across the different States here on nine 11, Nick, just for you real quick, obviously the, the anniversary of nine 11 just passed uh, as we're uh, releasing this episode, but just some of your thoughts, high level there, not only what the president said, but nine 11 itself, as we look back now, you know, 22 years later. Yeah. A lot comes to me as you were talking, I was, I was gesturing because you were wondering where, where was I still in school at that point? I just graduated. Um, so I was in the midst of my first job and I worked part-time. So I was working Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. So on Tuesday I'd woken up, I was just making coffee, checking the news. So I remember, I think I'd gotten up or at least I started watching television after the first plane had been hit. Cause I remember on the screen, just smoke coming out of a out of the building and it's one plane or it's one building. You're thinking, okay. This is just a horrifying like accident. Like that's what I kept thinking. And then as I'm watching, you know, they um the newscast cuts to like footage of the second building. And in that moment, I just froze because in that moment it felt very real of we're past accident now. This is a concerted effort to attack our country. And in the end, it was. And the rest of the day is really in a haze. I remember listening to um, seven seventy AM in in the seventy seven ABC radio. Um, so just listening to all the hosts, like in real time, makes sense. This uh, for you know for those of you in the tri state area, you know one of the first shows on that day was um, Curtis Sliwa and um, his friend who's a, who's a lawyer. You know Sliwa is obviously a member of the Guardian Angels in New York, and they were on the air. Or they had just wrapped up, and everyone on the new on the station was just—if they had a show, they were just on and reacting in real time, constantly cutting away to ABC News. I remember, um, I remember texting friends who were in the city. Uh, a mutual friend that Mike and I have was in law school at the time, so I reached out, made sure he was okay. There was another another uh, friend I reached out to as well. Obviously, cell signals were you know just like in and out. And I remember that night that I had, I had a friend who worked at the Blockbuster video talking about dating myself. And it was, you know, and I went over there. It was a good friend of mine. His name was Mike as well. And I knew he was working that night. So we were just, just talking like the TV was up. I was watching local news, not even like, you know, showing movies and stuff. And I remember people walking in late and one guy had come in suit jacket on, looked really tired and just, just dirt, just white dirt on his shoulders and he was telling us is that he had left the city and there was no way to drive out, no mass transit, no nothing. And he walked over the bridge, the George Washington bridge. And he just stopped in, just stopped in to sort of collect himself. And he was just sitting there looking up at the screen like the rest of us. And I'll never forget that. Um, and, and later on, the job I had in short was, you know, working for healthcare recruiting. So right afterwards, the next day I'm back at work. And one of my jobs was to find people to help 
you know, medical technicians, um, people in the medical field to just get out to the city, specifically in terms of support and cleanup and just recovery efforts. So I had people flooding my f- email, my phone the next day, just trying to see, can they send me a resume? Can they get out to the city? So I remember feeling just, you know, just satisfying this as I was feeling like I was doing something because prior to that, I was sort of in my head. I'm like, we're under attack. Like this is Pearl Harbor for a, a previous generation. So a lot always comes to me and I always appreciate people sharing the stories like you do because it's something that connects us, especially people our age. We remember vividly uh, what, what we were doing on that day. And for many of us, we had just gotten out of or almost done with college. So it's just very vivid memories. And um, yeah, so I, I think about that often when, when we come to this anniversary and there, and you're right, there is no easy segue and it's, and it's real, it's real. And we must never forget. And I would also offer it everyone to just consider the efforts of continuing to provide support to those who were the first responders, you know, those who are dealing with cancer and other related illnesses from the event. Obviously, John Stewart does incredible work in this space. Others do too. And we can continue to do better for those who, who served on that day, veterans as well. Um, it's especially odd too, because we're recently removed from the end of the war in Afghanistan. So there's a full circle here of our longest, you know, combat coming to a wrap or longest military engagement coming to a wrap and also reflecting on yet another anniversary of, um, just a really, just really sad and, and horrifying day in American history. As you were saying that, I started thinking of two friends of the show, uh, Mike Emanuel over on Fox News, um, Chief Washington Correspondent, Fox News Live host, and Frank Figluzzi, um, former FBI Assistant Director that's an MSNBC security analyst. Both of them did recent pieces this weekend, um, Sunday into Monday, uh, about some programs that are helping victims of 9-11, or at least folks that are still going through some of these different diseases and ailments that they have, like you mentioned, like the work that John Stewart's doing, there's a bunch of organizations that do that stuff. Frank's piece on, on MSNBC.com that you can check out was really about 21 recent FBI agents have all passed away over the last couple of years due to, you know, obviously some of the lung inhalation stuff and smoke things that, that, that have caused them to deteriorate and develop other diseases over the years. So I, I'd encourage everybody to go kind of check out Mike Emanuel's piece that he did on the foundation that works on that stuff. And Frank's piece that he did on some of his colleagues, you know, some folks that worked in different bureaus around the country that have passed away, unfortunately, recently due to some of this stuff. So, and like you said, there really is no um, easy transition or segue, but um, 9-11, you know, we will never forget. And um, I want you to shout out to all the people out there that, that have lost somebody affected by, the tragedy back in September 11th of 2001. I do want to segue. I just mentioned two friends of the pod. Let's mention a third friend of the pod um, because before we get into our first segment, which is truly about the GOP 24 field and what's been going on as everybody works their way up to the September 27th debate that's coming up on Fox business in a couple of weeks, I saw something that came across uh, the screen and by screen, I mean my phone on Twitter of our friend Maura Gillespie the Republican strategist, and she's a former deputy chief of staff to Representative Adam Kinzinger. She was a former press advisor to House Speaker John Boehner. You've heard her voice on this show a bunch of different times. If you didn't check out our first debate episode where she gave some analysis along with Marie Harf, who's a Democratic strategist and Fox News contributor. And Maura drew the ire 
of the former president of the United States, Nick. And it's it's funny and not funny. I want to give my takes after I kind of preface for you what the former president said about Mora. But first, let's hear what Mora actually said about the former president that drew a response. We're going to react. Take a listen to this. I think there are a lot of similarities and parallels between President Trump, former President Trump and President Biden, and age is certainly one of them. And I will say that they have not, neither candidate has been pretty robust on the campaign trail, whereas many in the GOP field have been. And we saw that recently in a poll that came out where it showed that Nikki Haley would, in a head-to-head matchup, would topple President Biden. So would Pence and Chris Christie and Tim Scott. So they, you know, this poll showed that, uh, that there are other candidates that we in the GOP have that we should really be focusing on. And I do think that, again, age is a factor, but also uh, being able to handle that robust schedule, having a handle on the issues, having the wherewithal to, to tackle different things simultaneously. We need that in leadership. A couple of things about Morris comments first, before I actually read for everybody what the former president said about her and why now I'm a little bit more worried for her. Um, uh, that CNN poll that she mentioned there, she didn't mention CNN, but it is a CNN poll that was conducted back on August 25th to the 31st. It was a random national sample of uh, 1,500 plus adults. Um, about 1,259 of them were registered voters. 391 were Democratic or Democratic-leaning independent voters. 898 were Republican or Republican-leaning independent voters. And in that polling, um, is where she gets a little bit of the numbers there where it showed Nikki Haley was leading 49% to f- President Biden, 43% in a hypothetical matchup between the two of them. Uh, she was favor- she was favored amongst uh, white voters with college degrees over President Biden, 51% uh, to 47%, or excuse me, whatever that math works out to, 49%. Um, and, and like she mentioned, there was a couple of other candidates that were in that poll, which was largely, again, like I just mentioned in the demographic breakdown, Republican or Republican-leaning voters that were part of that poll. But that has obviously gone to CNN, and now CNN has kind of talked about that and asked candidates their thought process on that. Um, I didn't think her comments were that alarming because- you and I have talked about this all the time. Uh, former President Trump is only three years younger than President Biden. So, you know, if you have problems with an 81-year-old taking office or being 84 by the time he's finished with his second term, let me introduce you to an 81-year-old who's just a few years younger, who probably shouldn't be in office either. And we can argue about policies and some of the things that he's done, obviously, outside of the uh, Oval Office that would potentially disqualify him or, or for some people, they would even consider it. But Here's what the former president wrote about Mora on Truth Social. He put another milk toast and milk is misspelled in the tweet, uh, in the truth, excuse me. And it's in air quotes. Another milk toast, lightweight commentator put on now by ratings challenge Fox News and the globalist dummies at the Wall Street Journal. Mora Gillespie just said that I wasn't working as hard on the Republican campaign trail as some of my competitors. I just returned from two days of massive crowds in Iowa and South Dakota. Others drew flies, flies is in air quotes. Also tell lightweight Mora, Mora's in air quotes, that I am leading all of these so-called hard workers by more than 50 points and crooked Joe by a lot. And then he put no energy in big, bold letters. So Nick, before I get your takes on some of the hilarity of all of that, and some of it's funny, some of it's not funny. 
Here's the not funny, but here's the funny part. Let's start with the funny part. The funny part is misspelled milk toast. Um, you never know who's watching your television segments out there. It's something that I'm going to take away from this heavily. Uh, not that I'm mindful of my words on TV, but former President Trump, if you're listening to this, I love the free pub. And I'll catch you on the next Fox News segment. And maybe you'll send something out about me. The flip side, uh, a female out there that's a strategist that's on television that happens to be blonde. And we know a few that have been on this show, Nick, that are friends of ours, have all drawn the ire of the former president. And all of those kind of semi-quasi attacks that are like, is it jovial? Is it playful? Or is it really steeped in hatred? It doesn't matter because to the untrained eye, specifically on Truth Social, which we can all agree is a further to the right uh, platform that was kind of an equivalent to Twitter, you never know what cycles live in that universe that would now look up more Gillespie or anybody else that's not only been on this show, but that has drawn the ire of the former president on True Social that can now be a target of something. You really don't know. Um, and it's one of the things that I texted more privately that I'm concerned about now for her. And it's it's one of the it's one of the things that never makes me pause, maybe because I'm a man. And I, and I say this, I, there's no hint of sexism, but like, I don't worry about that stuff. I don't worry about online trolls because I'm very big on you push the bully back, the bully will stand down. And that's always been a philosophy that I go with. And a lot of these folks, as other men that have come on this program, specifically like anchors that get a lot of vitriol, like Mehdi Hassan, for example, will tell you, no one ever says this to me in public. They say it to me on Twitter right behind their egg avatar, but they don't say it to me in person. Well, here we have a different scenario, right? And we have a different platform that she doesn't even engage with. We know the kind of audience type. And also we've seen his words turn into actions in a couple different instances. And you're going to hear a little bit from Nora Noose in just a bit about what her book is about and where some of these words kind of came from with the former president's speech a few days after that in terms of good people on both sides of this. There are no good people on the neo-Nazi side. So he was wrong there, dead wrong. Uh, Nick, I turn to you because it funnels in perfectly into this segue of like new polling data, but also former president feeling the effects of what he loves to say are rhinos, Republican in name only, like a Moore Gillespie, he would say, um, out on TV using their platform and using their position of formally working in government and coming to compromise and bipartisanship and working for the American people. And now he's like, well, you're part of the swamp and you are milk toast, and you don't get it. And we're going to get rid of people like you. What do you make of not only Mora's comments on Fox News Live, but the former president and what he said about her on Truth Social? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Mora is indeed a friend to the show and, and just great in the work that she does. Her analysis is dead on. I mean, we're talking about people that you know, are just are, are essentially elderly and we rightfully should be concerned about how much energy they're able to put on the campaign trail and, and the other work that they do. And we've had this conversation about members of Congress, including now a you know current minority leader in the Senate. And I think there's two parts to this. The first is the words of, of the former president, like any other thing. Um, he's a habitual liar. There's nothing, anything of any validity that he has to say. And a good example of that 
and Mike usually plays the clips. I'm going to play one here, actually. Um, as we as we think about recently, or you know, honoring the the anniversary of 9/11 and the victims, here's what the foreign president had to say in relation to as as the buildings are on fire. The, you have one of the landmark buildings down in the financial district, 40 Wall Street. Uh, did you have any damage or did you know what, what's happened down there? Well, it was an amazing phone call I made. 40 Wall Street actually was the second tallest building in downtown Manhattan. And, and it was actually before the World Trade Center was the tallest. And then when they built the World Trade Center, it became known as the second tallest. And now it's the tallest. And I just spoke to my people and they said it's the most unbelievable sight. That's what we're dealing with. So when I yesterday heard that the former president decided to talk about one of our own, and Moore is a, a member member of the Can We Please Talk family. So when I heard a member of the family was being messed with, I rightfully was ticked off. Um, but I counter that anger by recognizing that this man is a fool. And there's absolutely nothing of any merit or really anything sensible that he had to say. This is a person who's trying to recently trying to get the judge, one of the judges, to be recused in a criminal proceeding. Um, someone not worth listening to. And if you are one of those on True Social that takes this person as gospel, if you were one of those sympathetic to people on January 6th, then you're as gutless and spineless as this guy is. But what's even funnier is you'll prompt folks like you to do criminal activities while he'll hide and duck and have other people do it for him. It's not a person we're taking seriously, but like you, I do certainly think about our friend because women and women, period, when they are putting themselves out there, and I'm going to use Laura Kolodny, who's been a guest on this show previously, as an example of this, women have it harder as being a presence on social media and in the media in general, because the first insult that will always come from the trolls is about their gender, as though it's a deficit. We don't deal with that. You know, recently a clip that we had played, you know, courtesy of our producer and courtesy of Mike uh, through TikTok, Instagram and all that. We had tons of views. Um, and it particularly was something I said about the former president. I saw all the comments from trolls and such. And and it was all essentially harmless. People insulting my intelligence, people calling me a liberal. Fine. I mean, folks, as you do all this, please know I'm usually playing with the kids or <laughs> doing something else, reading my comic books or whatever. And again, we appreciate the engagement, but this doesn't bother me. But however, were I a woman, I imagine all kinds of heinous things are going to be thrown at me. Everything from threats of rape, everything to diminish my gender. Because that's usually trolls go along with incels and folks like that. These are just shallow men like the former president, shallow and small men, that this is what fuels them. Um, but because I'm a man, I identify myself as a man as Mike does. We don't we don't get it that way. So we don't worry as much about our respective safety and in the sp online spaces we occupy. But for someone like Moore, we genuinely worry and care. You know, let me ask you, um, staying on the former president, we're going to play some of his campaign stop and some of his greatest hits and his repetitive nature of saying some of these things on the trail, because I, I, I'm, I'm mystified having a conversation earlier with somebody today over dinner. I'm mystified at the fact that some of these other candidates, especially Nikki Haley, like in that poll, 
where she has a six percentage point lead over President Biden um, in this poll. And she was the only Republican candidate to dispatch Biden above the poll's three and a half point margin. But they're all losing to this guy. Again, policies aside, just for a second, because we're going to devote an episode drilling into once the former president actually, if he does become the GOP's eventual nominee, drilling into some positive, uh, excuse me, some policy stuff that he has done from an economic standpoint, foreign policy. Uh, and we're going to have different guests on that are going to kind of break that stuff down. Right now, you mentioned this before, we went to NikkiHaley.com, doesn't really talk a lot about her economic policy, right? Um, Tim Scott somehow is leading in that poll against Joe Biden, which is alarming to me because you couldn't pay me to vote for Tim Scott for president of the United States. You, you just couldn't. And, and, and again, whereas Nikki Haley, somebody like that elk who is bringing humanity to some of these issues, at least from her words, from what she said on uh, the debate stage, uh, that at least is more aligned with what I would like to see in a, in a candidate somebody younger, somebody of a different gender demographic um, that maybe wants to bring more humanity into the issues. We can drill into our policies later. Why do you think the former president is so far ahead of these people? Because we they love to say that they're a vocal minority, this MAGA group. So if they're a vocal minority, why are they the majority of the GOP primary voters right now voting for this guy, especially after he says things like this on the campaign trail. Take a listen. We like when we go off the teleprompter, don't you, Greg? Remember at the beginning, I used to do it without teleprompters. I didn't know what to tell. I said teleprompter. But you have to, because when you go on the teleprompter too long, no matter how good you are, it's called the boring time. We have such potential. And you know, we speak so negatively, and it's so horrible to be telling you what happened, but you know what happened, just like all you have to do is watch the newscast, which, by the way, if you look at ABC, CBS, NBC, you look at CNN, you look at MSDNC, which is, I think, the worst of all. I think they're horrible. Uh, I mean, the, what they say, they're evil. They're evil. They're really evil. And they're really a wing of the Democrat Party. I mean, they should be paying Somebody should report that for campaign contributions because it's so bad. What they say is so, so nasty, so horrible. I'm going to be indicted. I said, indicted? I never learned about that at the Wharton School. Indicted? But he actually did this to an opponent, a political opponent. Nobody would ever think it's possible. It wasn't really possible, even psychologically possible. He did this to an opponent. But when you think about it, I never said bad stuff. Now I say he's the worst president in the history of our country. He's the most corrupt president in the history of our country. And as other foreign leaders say, and as I say, he is grossly incompetent and he's very dangerous because he has no idea what he's doing. He can't put two sentences together. And we're playing with nuclear weapons with other countries. And he has no clue what the hell is going on. The main networks, they don't show what's going on on the border. It's, it's peanuts. What they show is nothing compared to the facts. This is an invasion and a destruction of our country, and they don't want to show it. 
because they want that crooked guy to be reelected if he makes it to the starting gate. I don't know if he's going. Nick, I'm struggling here. And again, some of you have heard my political positioning on television. I'm struggling because uh, minus the eye rolls that you and I both made as that played, um, there's nothing of substance there. All of that stuff is repetitive. It's wash, rinse, repeat. Um, it's nicknames that we've all heard. Uh, the yucks are yapping it up, clapping in the background. We've all heard the acronyms for some of these news networks. And by the way, to be honest with you, uh, I totally understand the mistrust in media as somebody who's worked in television news before. I get it. And I can point to countless examples of where it's lacking here in America and where it's different abroad um, retractions and things like that. I'm not going to get into the minutia, but how are people voting for that? And I, that's Moore's big point. Moore's big point is we need to move away from that, the theatrics of that, the I'm going to go off script and then just incoherent ramble about a bunch of different things, a little bit of projection somewhere in there. And then somewhere along the line, I don't get anything. I'm not understanding what it is you're going to do. What is your 2024 campaign and platform for the next four years? Where's my outlook, right? For people that have just lost their jobs, like where's my outlook? Where is it for President Trump? And that's, you know, two minutes of an hour and 20 minutes. There's a lot more like that. So where do you feel like all, all joking aside, drilling into like the specifics, how is this guy leading and what do you make of that poll that CNN um, released recently and the makeup of it, a large contingent of people, 1,500 or so folks, that are like, yeah, we'd support Nikki Haley or somebody else against President Biden, but it doesn't really show any of those folks beating former President Trump. Yeah, it, sh it shows the grip that, that Trump has on the party, which is funny because, again, Prior to announcing him running for election, I wouldn't have considered him a Republican. I truly think this man became a Republican on the day he got undressed by the former president for you know, President Obama at the White House Correspondents Dinner. This was a person who was known to be friends with the Clintons. This was a person known to support liberal causes. And he just took a massive right turn. You know, as far as those recent comments he mentioned, like in the speech, you know, well, I went to the Wharton School. Well, you barely you don't know the word milk toast. So I don't know what exactly you got from the school. And not to mention that it's a reputable business school, but this is a shady businessman. So I don't necessarily think Wharton's all that proud to consider him an alum at this point, which is and it's also funny, too, because Trump is an anti-intellectual. So I, I thought it was odd that he wants to, to push forward and remind people he went to a good school when you speak in front of an audience of people who completely don't trust institutions anything from doctors with vaccines to universities. Because again, he doesn't really connect with you know, middle class and, low, and, and the poor. He never has. But these are the people that tend to find him the most supportive. Um, he, say, he was quoted on that speech as saying, I never said bad stuff. You know, I laugh at this, but it is the most accurate. And if you are a fan of pop culture, if you are a fan of the Chappelle show, you know the clip I'm talking about. When Rick James says in one beat, I never put my foot on Eddie Murphy's couch. And then the very next second when asked about it, it said, yeah, I put my feet on Eddie's couch. That's the president. That's President Trump. I don't know if he is intentionally delusional 
or he just says truly whatever comes to mind. And this whole thing about, well, I don't need to read off a teleprompter. Like somehow it's a tough guy thing to not be prepared. You know who also didn't read off a teleprompter? President Lincoln. <laughs> the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858 were not predicated on, well, I have prepared remarks and this guy does too. No, it was just a lengthy conversation about the vision for the country. And Abraham Lincoln, a far better speaker than the former president. You know, he made a comment about foreign leaders and foreign leaders find this person incompetent. I think there's only two foreign leaders that find President Biden incompetent. And one of which happens to be the leader of Russia, and the other one happens to be the leader of North Korea. That, it's, all, it's all he does. Now, you asked about his appeal to the audience. Yeah. This, is, this is popularism. This is the idea that someone is prepared to take a flamethrower to the federal government. And that's fine. I mean, there are certainly people who don't believe. We've seen this in segregationists, um, the origins of the, of the Civil War. There are people who do not want federal authority. They want sole governance of their town, of their state. Fine. But history tells me, especially with climate change, all of you will come running back to the federal government when you need FEMA assistance. All of you will come running back to the government when your local banks fail or you need help with crime, whatever you want to you know, define that as. These folks are phony. These folks claim they don't want the army. They don't they want no federal support. But in times of crisis, they are the first to call, go ahead and call up the White House. Go look at Chris Christie asking for help from President Obama, which was the smart thing to do. Or even Ron DeSantis, who had it, who had needed support from the you know current President Biden. It's just tough guy talk from a guy who is at all not even remotely tough at all. Well, we leave it there because there's going to be more from this field over the next couple of weeks as they prepare for the September 27th debate. We are going to do a debate prep episode with a democratic strategist and uh, obviously a co-host on Fox News is the five. Jessica Tarlov is going to be joining us that week. We're going to prepare for the debates. She's going to take us inside everything around it. So more on that in the coming weeks, when we come back after the break, the stand against white supremacy back in 2017, in August of 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia, Nora Noose wrote a fantastic book really about everything that surrounded these two days and this Unite the Right rally, neo-Nazis that descended upon this town with tiki torches, chanting Jews will not replace us. You're going to want to hear this interview and more of what Nora's book exposes on what happened over those two days in Charlottesville, Virginia. Nora, when we come back after the break. 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. This episode is presented by our friends, our good friends, over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. The coffee that's keeping me awake when Nick Savary's putting me to sleep with one of his trains of thought. Are you, you give me a look here, Nick. Uh, give me a little bit of how Fresh Roasted Coffee keeps you awake when I'm boring you with some of my trains of thought. Okay, thank you. <laughs> interesting introduction folks i'm a huge fan as you all know of fresh roasted coffee primarily for the simple fact about diversity if you're a tea person they've got you covered if you're a coffee person they got you covered too mike and i take our coffee very differently mike is a keurig man that is efficient that is tasty that's the way to go i am a french press person nowadays i actually grind my own beans so when i get my batch of fresh roasted coffee it goes right into the grinder then to the french press boiled water let's go but in either case our cup of coffee comes out delicious mostly because they ask you at the jump what's just tell us about you simple quiz they'll direct you to the bean or brand that you you should be getting in touch with and that's the way to go and then they just produce an incredible cup of coffee again regardless of how you do it no that's exactly right you can take the quiz over at freshroastedcoffee.com And in the show notes page right now of this episode, hit the link for a discount or enter in the promo code after you've taken the quiz, after you've selected the coffee you're going to order, enter in the promo code. Can we please get 20 for 20% off your first purchase? I'm telling you, this coffee is delicious. Go to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, we alluded to her in the previous segment. Nora Noose is joining us here on the program. She's got a fantastic book out, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy. Nora, Mike, and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thank you. You know, Nora, this this book is, I was telling you this off air, I'm going to bring it over here, but like, I, I love reports. You know, when you were a kid, you, you had to do a book report. Um, you did a book that is a report. It's a report on everything that, kind of happened back in 2017 in Charlottesville. I think, in the, at least for me, I can only speak for myself, uh, a lot is lost about that event over the two days, right? We all seen the images of the torches and the white supremacists in the town, the, the car driving through the crowd the next day on Saturday at the Unite the Right rally. Um, can you take our audience high level, 30,000 foot overview about the book itself and then the events of those two days as you covered it in your previous job? Sure. Well, I think the book really is a report on what happened in Charlottesville, not just August 11th and 12th, 2017, but really that whole summer, which locals call the summer of hate. And there's this idea among mainstream 
media and the kind of national media that what happened in Charlottesville is that white nationalists came and then rammed a car through a crowd of counter protesters and killed one of them. Technically, that is true, but that's really not how it happened. There was a long lead up to this enormous, uh, the largest in the modern era gathering of white nationalists at the time. And the book shows how officials were warned repeatedly that this was going to happen, that violence would happen. And were largely, uh, these activists and, and anti-racist activists largely were ignored. Um, and so culminated in the attack on August 12th, um, really was part of this much wider uh, trend line that continued, of course, all the way through January 6th and into the present day. No, I'm glad you just connected the dots between Charlottesville and January 6th. In your estimation, and you're obviously you're a reporter, you know, the book is an example of that. But, you know, when we think about terrorism in the U.S., only only recently does it seem that the FBI is starting to really point to the fact that white nationalists, when we think of terrorists with a capital T, are our greatest threat domestically. In, in the reporting you've done for this book and just your awareness of sort of national events, are we putting enough emphasis? I mean, we're hearing lip service or we're hearing that at the federal level, sometimes at the states. But in your estimation, are we pro- are we providing the same level of att- or giving it the same level of attention as we would if, to be bluntly honest, the people marching in the streets of Charlottesville look more like me and less like a lighter skinned person? Like me, um, yes. I mean, absolutely. That is the kind of the crux of of the larger problem here that we had a war on terror, and it was when it was on brown people. And now we have an enormous terrorist threat. The Department of Homeland Security issued a bulletin that you kind of alluded to saying this is the most prevalent terrorist threat against America right now. And there isn't the level of public outcry and concern uh, about stopping the threat. But it's also kind of a misnomer to think that it's a new threat. I mean, white nationalist, white supremacist, um, even just looking in the modern era, um, terrorism, you know, you go back to Oklahoma City, like this, this has been growing. Um, and then I don't know how deep into American history you want to get, but this is a country that was formed on white supremacy. And so, of course, you're going to have a problem then when uh, years later, white supremacy is the largest terror threat uh, to, to the United States. And I'm not just saying that as a like in a hypothetical, theoretical idea. I'm saying that our federal government, the DHS, Dr. Harvard Homeland Security, the FBI, have looked at data and threats and intelligence and said, these are the people who are concretely planning attacks and violence on our communities. I'm I'm chuckling for those of you who were seeing this video, because as you said that this was not the, the genesis or the nexus, because I agree with you on that. Oklahoma City is a good example. You know, when we think of the history and let's keep it to, say, post civil or post civil rights, you know, Charlottesville recently feels like that just watershed moment for, I think, in in modern um, news coverage. But, you know, you mentioned Oklahoma City. Like, are there previous events that we don't emphasize nearly enough and sort of draw a connection to to where we are right now? Again, you connect the dots from here through January 6th, but Mm -hmm. For you, prior to Charlottesville, is there a particular event that stands out that, you know, maybe if we'd given it the same level of attention as we did to, you know, I want to be careful with how I talk about 9-11 in this case, but, you know, with that kind of 
thrust of attention that we we perhaps may have missed. Absolutely. And there's a series of white nationalist kind of attacks, for lack of a better word, on other kind of small, seemingly liberal uh, college towns and on gatherings of anti-racist activists for the couple of years leading up to uh, August 12th in Charlottesville. There was uh, the attack in Berkeley. Um, there was in, in Portland. Um, there was a, a white nationalist versus anti-fascist um, battle, for lack of a better word, in Kentucky a couple of years before. And so a lot of the activists in Charlottesville before, you know, quote unquote, Charlottesville happened, we're, we're saying, look at these other events. Look, we can see some of the same players are organizing in the same way. And what did make Charlottesville unique is that a lot of this nascent alt-right movement was growing online. And it was after the presidency of Donald Trump that a lot of this came out into the open, that these people felt like they could come out and march in the streets without masks, without hoods. And there were actual predece like predecessing events that, you know, the government and the, the police and intelligence community could have looked to um, to know that Charlottesville was going to get messy. Um, but it was the at the time the largest modern gathering of white supremacists, white nationalists uh, in modern American history. And so it was unprecedented in that way. You know, Nora, we're going to get to a bunch in the book because there's one part you were just echoing it before where somebody says uh, this happening at the University of Virginia that was founded by slaves. Yeah, it kind of checks out. And I, I just had to chuckle at that when I was reading that. And there's a bunch of things in the book here that I wanted to ask you about, specifically around Nick was talking about preparedness, right? And some of these events. It seems like a lot in this book speaks to a lack of preparedness from the state, from the president of the University of Virginia, not even knowing that they were going to go over to the statue uh, with the torches. Uh, and somehow the white supremacists convinced the police that they were just going to go there and read a speech. Like, what at any point as you're doing your reporting and, you, and you're trying to find a through line to this, does the lack of communication from officials on the ground there, state and local level, any point you scratch in your head, any point are you like, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Why are we helping the folks that have the hate speech and the hmm. torches and not the people that are protesting against them? What was what was kind of that through line for you as you were writing this book and seeing the breakdown and miscommunication? Now I'm chuckling. Um, I think it goes back to what Nick was just saying, which is like, who gets the benefit of the doubt? And that is largely white men in this country. And so there's this, I think, very illuminating quote in the book from the president of the university. You know, she was telling me this is one of her first interviews since all this has happened. And she has since stepped down and is in a new position. And she was telling me that they actually called the police. The white nationalists called the police the night before their their big march on uh, or the night of the march on UVA's uh, grounds. You know, this is the kind of vice documentary that you may have seen the white supremacists with the, uh, the, the torches screaming, Jews will not replace us. That night, they called the police. And they said, hey, we're going to have a march tonight, but don't worry, it's going to be peaceful. We're going to stay on the streets, which is public property. Just wanted to give you a heads up. And I asked the president of the university, you know, why did you believe them? And, you know, I think I, I don't, I think she was given an, an enormous amount of misinformation and, and not enough information from, from people. And I don't entirely think anything is like her fault. But what she said to me was, well, you know, they both of the organizers of the march were UVA graduates and we have an honor code. And so I figured they were, 
you know, we, we, we believe that our students and our alumni are abiding by the honor code. And so I didn't think they were lying. And I don't think that benefit of the doubt institutionally would have been given to a group of people had they not been white men. Again, <laughs> my eyes got wide when you mentioned just that revelation from the, um, from the president. Let's just bring this to recent events. Jacksonville. Mm. What? Yes, you know, I have thoughts about this. Yeah, okay, then let's just go there. I'm not even ask you a question. Just top of mind, what comes up to you? Like what when you heard that story concerning the book you just wrote, you're sitting somewhere, standing somewhere, you see the news. Like, what's your body going through? Is it like here we go again, or is there something else coming up? It makes me so angry, honestly. And I think it's a real misopportunity for the media to be covering these attacks as part of a larger movement. White nationalists, white supremacists, mass shooters do not look at mass shootings as individual events. So folks uh, like the Jackson, Jacksonville shooting and Buffalo from last year and, and other hate driven mass shootings. Um, there's this kind of way that these mostly men are in dialogue with each other. They're quoting from each other's manifestos. They are actively trying to up the body count from the previous attacks. And yet our media and even sometimes our law enforcement looks at each mass shooting as its own discrete event. Sometimes that's true. I mean, sometimes it's not a white supremacist and you you have to be careful about the nuance that you bring to a topic like this. But in so many cases, I mean, one of the biggest terror threats, if not the biggest terror threat to America right now is a white supremacist driven lone wolf, I'm doing air quotes, shooter, who actually is part of this enormous movement that is promoting these kind of attacks. It's really easy for us to say when it is a an ISIS-inspired attack to say, oh, it's an ISIS-inspired attack. And yeah, they were working alone, but clearly they wanted it to be part of this larger ideology. We as Americans have a very hard time saying, okay, this was a lone wolf attack, but clearly it was part of this larger movement when it comes to white supremacy. And that's a really important line to draw. You know, Nora, yeah, I mean, you fed into the follow-up question perfectly. I was a former producer at the network that maybe, not maybe, probably is responsible for some of this. I apologize, but I worked on the nightly news cuttings, okay? But you worked at CNN Advice. You've done a lot in, in the journalism space. You kind of answered a bunch there about like what the media needs to do, at least a little bit better to kind of cover these events and how they group the ISIS ideology, but they don't group this lone person into that ideology. I wanted to ask you something different because you you kind of answered it there. Um, something that, and I may fumble this a little bit, but as I'm reading the book, remember August 11th is the Tiki Torches. August 12th is Unite the Right. It seemed like there was a period in between though that really isn't at least covered, which is the wee hours of the morning Almost like everybody was like, OK, time to go to bed. You hate tomorrow and we'll meet you at the same time at like 630 in the morning. Can you take our audience a little bit inside like this period where there's like this miscommunication? There's there's parts where like the UVA president's trying at midnight to figure out what's going on. There's no real police presence downtown. Like a lot of these things. I know I asked earlier about the breakdown and miscommunication, but it just seems like there's enough information out there from Discord channels, all of these different 4chan, 8chan, all these different chat rooms that law enforcement should be looking at at this day and age. Remember, it's only a few years ago. And 
nobody is either doing something about it. We've had a former FBI special agent, P-Lap, on the show and one of our live programs. And he said, look, if we start to look into the bio of some of the police officers within the FBI, we're, we're in for a world of hurt because we're going to lose a lot of our, our workforce. And that got me thinking about some of this, where you mentioned the warning signs and indicators are there. The law enforcement's not doing anything. Can you kind of take our audience a little bit inside this kind of breakdown in between the 11th and the 12th and everyone doing a Cobra and G.I. Joe? Uh, we'll see you in a little bit. We're going to retreat. We'll be right back in the morning to fight. And then what we think about how law enforcement just did not heed these signs. Why? Why didn't they? you said the UVA president was it's not really her fault, but something's got to be behind it. There's clear warning signs here. So what what is it from Nora's reporting that's behind all of this? So on the first question, it honestly reminds me almost of like an American Revolutionary War battle kind of thing where it's like, okay, you and me tomorrow in this field, we're going to throw down. It was a a scheduled battle. um, And that just is what it was. Uh, The Unite the Right was a march that was planned to start at noon on Saturday. It was a permitted event. And then the other side, the counter protesters, the anti-racist activists, Antifa, banded together to have thousands of people join the streets in in protest. And it, it was a planned event in that way, but it started much earlier in the day. So to go back, Friday night, there is this group of UVA students who are attacked around the statue of Thomas Jefferson at the University of Virginia. And after that, there's this kind of like sleepless night where the activists are trying to figure out like, okay, is our plan still the same thing for tomorrow? Do we still want to go out and bodily um stand up for our community and and for people of color in our community and and so on um these people are violent we now know that they are extremely violent we knew that before but now we've seen it with our own eyes and most the activists decided yes we still want to to go forward um meanwhile a lot of the law enforcement was just preparing for the next day um there's a lot of what ifs now about about that that time period but at the time there was still this sense of it almost happening in a bubble for example the charlottesville farmers market is downtown it's a couple blocks away from from the park where the the battle happened um and it was open that morning they just let the farmers market continue to be open and there's pregnant moms walking around with their coffee and these families and kids running around and this is exactly this is three blocks away from where there is the largest gathering of violent white nationalists in American, modern American history, and that we knew was coming and was planned and had a city permit. Um, and so it was a lot of kind of cognitive dissonance, even for for leaders. I mean, the, the Brian Moran, who is the state uh, uh, safety sec- secretary of, gosh, I forget his title now, but he was the governor's right-hand man in terms of uh, homeland security for the state. And he was walking around saying, like, what is going on here? Like, how how has the city not told people? Um, and the city didn't. There was no reverse call. There was no state of emergency. A lot of people in town who weren't that politically plugged in weren't aware um, of what was going to happen. And to your second question of once it got heated up and once the kind of street battle ensued, why the police did nothing is kind of the million-dollar question. The charitable interpretation is that they were scared and didn't want to escalate the continuum of force that if they started arresting people or if they put out a gun then all these other 
militia members, white nationalists who were much better, more armed than they were with uh, assault rifles and such, would open fire in a crowd and it would become a bloodbath in the streets of Charlottesville. A charitable interpretation is that the restraint showed by the police of, in letting people fight it out amongst themselves may have saved greater violence in the end. That's charitable, I, I, I say. Another understanding is that it just, a small town police department was just not equipped for this. And the state troopers came in to help. And there were all these little issues that turned into big issues, like the radios weren't synced. So someone, a guy was supposed to go in and like change all the radios the night before and never did. And they couldn't figure out how to do it and get all the radios on the same channel. And so the local police and the state troopers couldn't talk to each other. Um, there was a bunch of riot gear hitting out back, but no fenced in area behind the truck. Um, they just like couldn't get to it. Um, the police were all told to stand behind the barricades and watch it happen. And so they did. And then there's, of course, the nefarious interpretation, which is they're white nationalists and they were going to watch them fight. I think it's easy. Well, first, as you said, that I'm reminded of recently in, or in Orlando, you know, you have Nazis outside of Disney World. <laughs> you know, fully masked up and it's viewed as a protest. I think we're all, you know, recognizing obviously that this is evil and that the, something needs to be addressed about this, but there is that sort of casualness of, oh, well, that's just them. And as we said at the start, if we simply had called them Al Qaeda, I think we have a very different interpretation. Shifting gears. We've been talking a lot here about the Nazis, really American Nazis, but let's talk about your book also gets into the fight against that, you know, what we sometimes label, what we label as Antifa, what we label as, you know, social justice warriors and all these, you know, negative terms sometimes. But there were people who tried to fight the good fight, tried to make us all aware, who even now, through anti-racism and other efforts, are trying to really wake America up to this. What was your assessment about their efforts nationally? What are you seeing from the dialogue and discourse they bring to these conversations and their activities, which do not result in wearing masks and, you know, standing out with swastikas and guns in front of a children's amusement park? Yeah, I think there often is, you know, especially with Antifa, this like boogeyman idea, especially among right wing media. Um, but this is a, a kind of long term phenomenon in this country of people standing up for the marginalized and anti people who are anti fascist. That's what Antifa stands for, um, are not all members of a militant radical group. And there are a lot of anti racist activists, social justice activists um, who are all part of this kind of contingent that came out in Charlottesville. Um, combined with an enormous progressive clergy um, presence. There were there were very many, both of, of kind of every faith tradition, progressive clergy who were on the front lines against the white nationalists. And I think the thing to understand about Charlottesville, and maybe is one of the biggest takeaways from the book, is that it was these people who were actually going out and doing the intelligence gathering, who were doing the uh, discord and DM infiltration. You know, one of the leaders, Emily Gorsanti, put together a full dossier of the violent threats against the people of Charlottesville, presented it to city council, said, please deny the permit to these people to come. And the city council thought that their hands were tied legally because of a free speech issue. And so, which, you know, is a whole kind of separate issue that we can get into. But there was a lawsuit the night before the rally. They ended up uh, allowing the rally to, to continue. Um, and so it's these citizens that are the ones who are actually 
raising the alarm had the intelligence, had the information, and if they had been listened to more, deaths could have been prevented. And the mayor of Charlottesville, Mike Signer at the time, even apologized specifically to Emily Brzezinski after he stepped down, not stepped down, but after he finished his term and said, you know, we should have listened to you more. And so we need to listen to our citizens. It's not always the elected officials who have all the information and know what they're talking about. Very well said. Nora, before we let you go, um, somebody sees this book. I like to ask authors this question. Somebody's walking by Barnes and Noble, sees this book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville. What is something without them sitting there and reading it and, and not paying for it? What is something that you would want them to take away from this book? Hmm. I think it can feel really powerless to be a human in this country and in this world right now because our problems are so big. And in Charlottesville, it was regular people, like normal, everyday, regular people who were actually the ones doing the work to keep people safe and to try to prevent bigger tragedy from occurring. There's a funny quote in the book. Someone says, yeah, like, we didn't know what we were doing. We were running out to buy cases of LaCroix when we were having these, like, trainings for people of how not to get killed by neo-Nazis. And there's something about that that just strikes me. because It's like, yeah, we're going out and buying cases of LaCroix in someone's backyard while we're trying to figure out how to defend America. And it is just regular people. There's this sense that I think even among the city councilors, they were looking to the lawyers to tell them what to do. The lawyers were trying to interpret precedent to look what to do. A lot of the the police, ground level police were looking to their captains what to do. Everyone was kind of like pointing at someone else. And at the end of the day, like it's just us. There's no adult in the room that's going to fix it. Well, listen, I told you uh, before off air, I'll bring it here. I, I love reports. This read like such a really good, well-researched, in-depth report. You interviewed everybody from the governor all the way on down. 24 hours in Charlottesville and oral history of the stand against white supremacy. You can go get the book now wherever books are sold. Nora, can't thank you enough for hopping on the podcast with us, giving us a couple minutes here. Continued success to you. Please stay safe. Absolutely. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right, our thank yous there to Nora Noose. Like I mentioned, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy. It really it really is a good book. People always make fun of me. They say, you don't read the books. I, I truly read the books. She oh, told us off air. You know, th- those are good questions. Yeah, well, I mean, I read that. And, you know, when I read this book, Nick, the, the biggest things that stood out to me, and I asked her about the miscommunication, like it just seems like, there's a fracturing or this non-belief system. Like you want to you want to think that these public officials and specifically those in law enforcement are on the up and up, right? So let's take it at they're on the up and up. We've got credible threats, posted online messages. The guy's a former UVA grad who's leading this. He's been known to have rallies like this that have turned violent in other places, not to the degree that it turned there, but he's been known to do this. And she mentioned yeah, but they they have this honor code because he's a former UVA grad. I mean, what is that? Like, like if I was known to do some of these things, I don't think Rutgers would have that same honor code with me. So that was one. 
the breakdown in, in communication, there's a part in the book, I'm telling you, the UVA president's like, what is going on down there? It's like, excuse me, what is going down down there? You're the president of this university. How do you not know what is going on down there? Third, how this guy who led this was able to convince people that this would just be them going to give a speech by a statue. And the next thing you know are the images that we've all seen on television of them marching down with tiki torches and swastikas and chanting Jews will not replace us, you will not replace us. And then what they did with fighting citizens that night with the tiki torches, and then the next day we see what happens as fights break out and then the car that's driven into the crowd ultimately killing a young lady who's actually mentioned in the book as well. So it, there's just so many things that when I read this book, it, it made me more angry because some of it's preventable. You know, I forgot to tell her this, you know, I, obviously, Nick, you know, I'm from we're from up there in New York. Like if you get a threat the next morning, there's NYPD, you know, uh, gates that are up everywhere, securing something. Just look at any different parade that has happened in the city. Now, again, the infrastructure is a little bit different. She mentioned small town cops, maybe not, you know, being equipped with all of this stuff. And they had all this stuff out back. Either way, leadership stems from the top. And these people either did not know it or did not take it serious enough. And it's got to be questioned, like, why aren't you taking this stuff serious? You're the president of this university. You're the governor of this uh, of this state. What is going on here? You're getting these credible threats. Uh, what were some of your takeaways, not only from from Nora's interview there and some of the stuff that she outlined, but but the book itself? It's going to be a book that I buy to add to my my girl syllabus. Um, I think I've talked about this way back when on the show, but there are books I just constantly add to my collection to to give to my daughters because I simply don't trust oftentimes what American history curriculum looks like. So it's imp- so I, I thought it was just an important text. I like what you said too about that report feature. It did feel a little like the January 6th commission's report. You know, Mike, it's funny as you were talking about the president's role and like, where were they, right? I compare this to the way we paid attention to, to Penn State, you know, with the sexual abuse case. That entire administration had coach on down. Nobody's left. The university looked at that and said, we must wipe the stain of this. And that was a horrific itch situation. You know, for everyone remembering, just simply Google the name Jerry Sandusky and you know, Google will do the rest for you. This situation here, the reaction was just different. In my interpretation from the book and even from a national coverage standpoint, Nora brought up a really, really important point when she talked about the lone wolf idea that we often look at white supremacists as isolated incidents. We don't look at it as a trend. And I I laughed a little internally because I swear this show always becomes relevant here. I would offer to anyone to go back and watch Watchmen on HBO. Um, So with a modern take on the graphic novel from the eighties, but this idea that, you know, sometimes this is an inside job. Now in this case, we don't know the police, feds, state troopers, who's sympathetic to an organization like this. But we have it on good authority in Pete Lapp in DC, as you referenced in that conversation, you know, with Nora. Sometimes the call is coming from inside the house. And that may be a reason we don't look at the acts of white supremacist organizations in the same way we look at terrorist organizations that where the people look more like me, as I as I said. And you know, I sit with that reality because that all that is Again, there is no smoking gun here, but that feels like the most logical explanation to why we tend to look at 
the crimes of white people in isolation as opposed to a potentially national attack. If we talked about, I mean, we're, you know, we're seeing Homeland Security and the FBI taking more of a view, but taking a view is great. Are we prepared to start kicking down doors and doing something? For some reason in this country, not for some reason, we know why, racism is protected by the First Amendment within reason. But you'll have certain news outlets that are more passionate about showing videos of kids looting a shopping mall or you know, gun violence in the inner city. Use Chicago as the buzzword here. But when we see something like Jacksonville, Orlando, most recently with Nazis in front of freaking Disney World, and this situation in Charlottesville, we, we view them as, well, they have a right to do this. They have a right to say what they want. It's America. And I think we have to really call attention to the fact that it often feels in this country we we protect racists in a way that we don't protect other criminals. And yes, in this case, if you're willing to walk down the street with a torch, ye- yelling Jews will not replace us and all kinds of horrific racist things, I think there is a law somewhere that you are breaking. I mean, it's one of the big things in the book, man. I'm telling you, if you go out there and read it, 24 hours in Charlottesville and oral history of the stand against white supremacy, if you're not shaking your hand at some of this stuff, when you're reading this book, that's a you problem. I, I got to be honest, because I, I was infuriated by some of this stuff. And like you said, hate speech, unfortunately, is protected speech. It made me think of when Pete Lapp said that to us uh, in the interview once upon a time. Our thank yous again to Nora for coming on the program. If you want to see the video portion of our interview with Nora, head to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. Hit the subscribe button. We should come right up. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now, Apple, Spotify, Google, Good Pods. Shout out to everyone that's listening to us now on YouTube Music. We're live on YouTube Music. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. And we can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. As always, I am Mike Leon. And to those of you who do practice anti-racism, we try to teach people about anti-racism. The battle continues, and we're grateful for your efforts. I'm Nick Severi. We'll see everybody next time. <laughs>